Hey, what's up guys? Welcome to Hope Brooklyn Church Online. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for joining us today in this Labor Day weekend. Don't know if holidays are still a thing, but happy Labor Day. Uh, I feel like we've all been working very hard this year. So thanks for taking a little time out of your day um, to, to worship God alongside us as a community. Just a reminder, uh, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you've heard us say it. This is the last time that I'm going to be coming to you pre-recorded. Next Sunday, we are transitioning to what we're calling sort of phase one uh, to begin our regathering as a community. And that means we are going to be coming to you live at 11 a.m. We are renting a space in Brooklyn where the worship will be happening in the same space, and then we'll have the sermon, we'll have announcements, it'll all be live. So what that means is we're going to take back the 11 a.m. hour. I know it's been nice to be able to, to tune in the afternoons or throughout the week. I get that. And obviously, um, at least at first, we're still going to put the full service for the first two Sundays and in, in, uh, kick this off. We're going to put the full service online. But eventually, we're not going to have the full service online, just the, the sermon. Because this is our, our first step of, of coming back together at this 11 o'clock hour. Be in prayer about it. It is going to be, uh, as a staff, we've been collectively growing excited and sensing the presence of God. Because I, I, this is amazing, the technology we have, but there is something profound and spiritual. And as Jesus says, when, when two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. So go ahead and prepare your hearts next Sunday, 11 a.m. And, and like I said last week, don't come alone. We are not Netflix. This is not entertainment. We are gathering together to be confronted by the living God. We are gathering together to be formed and discipled or, or to put our trust in him. We're gathering together to, to confront and to cast out powers of darkness that are at work in our minds and our hearts. This is not entertainment. So make sure that when you tune in, tune in with someone. Invite your quarantine bubble over. Um, or if you don't feel comfortable with people, that's totally fine. Invite someone to join you on Zoom because there'll be opportunities to pray together, to worship together. We need this. We need community now more than ever. And to start next week, we are going to be beginning a brand new series that's going to take us through September and October that we are calling The Light of the World. Uh, it is a title that will make a little bit more sense after today's message, but the gist is simple. We're, we're living in a, in a cultural moment where lots of different people, lots of different political parties, lots of different movements are... are uh, offering up a gospel for us. And they're saying that we can enlighten your life. If you trust in us, we will lead you to illumination, to enlightenment, to salvation. And what we're saying, what we're contending for is um, there might be some, some essence of light in what they're saying, but the true light of the world that gives light to all and that brings our souls lasting satisfaction, that is found in Jesus Christ. That is our claim. That is our contention. And we're going to examine what that means starting next week. So it's going to be great. But before we get there, um, we are finishing up today our three-week mini-series that we've been in called The Fog. Obviously, notice the light pierces through the fog. Um, but the fog has been uh, us walking with Jesus in his 40 days of fasting before he begins his public ministry when he was tempted by Satan. Uh, he was tempted three times, and we've been looking at each temptation. And today we're at the third one. And I dare say that this temptation today 
might be the most pressing one for us in this season and in our cultural moment. So let's pray together, and then we'll read the text and jump into the message. Join me. God, I thank you for the opportunity to slow down and to hear your voice. I thank you for steps of faith, so people who aren't sure about you, doubt you, don't know you exist. They're here. They're tuning in. It's not on accident. I pray in this next bit of time that you would speak through me and that there would be a weight on their hearts that suggests your presence and love for them. And for all of us, that you would speak through these words, that you would almost break up our thoughts, that you would confront our ideas and lead us into the path of truth, because we need you to guide us, Jesus. We are your people. We're here, we love you, and we want to follow you. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, this comes from Luke. Uh, we've been in Matthew's Temptations, but it's also recorded in Luke's. I'm using that one for today. So this is what Luke says. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and glory, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There was a New York Times article that came out in early August, and it was looking at the, the political campaign of President Trump back in 2016. And it said that there was, a, there was a trip nine days before the Iowa caucuses in 2016 where President Trump visited Sioux Center, Iowa. I never know if I say that word right. S-I-O-U-X. Sioux Center, Iowa. And uh, it's a very conservative Christian sort of smaller town. And uh, he spoke at the college, the local college. Um, and this is the, the speech where uh, he famously said that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue or, or Madison Avenue and get away with it. But in this article, it says, actually, that wasn't the, the part that really got people's hearts. He said something else. And they're making the claim uh, in this article that uh, what he, this other thing he said is what really captured the hearts of the people. And I want to read this to you because I think it's really important for, for the temptation today. This is what was said that day in January in 2016. I will tell you, Christianity is under tremendous siege, whether we want to talk about it or we don't want to talk about it. Christians make up the overwhelming majority of the country, he said. And then he slowed slightly to stress each next word. And yet we don't exert the power that we should have. He raised a finger. Christianity will have power, he said. If I'm there, you're going to have plenty of power. You don't need anybody else. We don't exert the power we should have. Christianity will have power. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll give you their glory, their authority. I'll give you their power if you would but vote for me. And just in case there's anyone who's tuning in who might identify as being on the left, and based on everything I just said, there, there might be a, 
a, a rising sense of smugness or self-righteousness at the gullibility of the right. Just in case, let me, let me snuff that out right now. I'm talking to you two because you are falling prey to the exact same temptation as they. A seizing and an exerting of a Christianity with power. Now, before we go further, I've talked about this before, but just to rehash it, uh, religion and politics are one and the same. They're, they're, they're one and the same. For those who say keep religion out of politics, it's impossible because all political ideologies are answering religious questions. And I'm not talking about like uh, the capital R religion that David Dark, you know, he, he, he contrasts capital R religion and lowercase r religion. I'm not talking about capital R, which deals with like chalices and liturgies and, and corporate worship times. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about lowercase r, which are controlling stories, he says, which get at uh, answering questions of why do we exist? For what purpose do we exist? What is, uh, what is the good life that we all should be living toward? And the answer of those questions take on political forms. We design governments based on those questions. We design constitutions, values, legislation. So there is no such thing as a politics without religion. No such thing. All candidates, all movements, all ideologies are promising gospels. They are promising good news that if we would but sacrifice our money to them, if we would but give of our bodies to them, if we would but vote for them, then we would inherit eternal life. We would inherit their vision of the good life. So you cannot say there's a politics without a religion. Also, you cannot say that, that Christianity isn't political. For anyone who wants to say that Christianity has nothing to do with politics has not read the Bible. William Stringfellow put it like this. The biblical topic is politics. The Bible is about the politics of fallen creation and the politics of redemption. The politics of nations, institutions, ideologies, and causes of this world. And the politics of the kingdom of God. The politics of death and the politics of life. Literally, the, G uh, the message Jesus brought when he came is, the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. The kingdom of heaven is here. Kingdom is a political word. It's a political entity. It's governing us of the way we should live, what we should pursue, the values we should ascribe toward. It's essentially the question of what are you willing to sacrifice to bring about your vision of the good life, of the world you want to live in. And what we want to look at in this temptation is what was Satan offering Jesus? What was he offering him? What kind of world was he promising? And there's really two elements to it, right? He shows him all the kingdoms and he says, I will give you this glory and this authority. Glory and authority. And then we need to get it straight. Those are good things. Those aren't bad things. Don't, don't imagine some megalomaniac leader who's just basking in glory and, you know, like Zeus with the, the, the lightning bolts of authority. Don't imagine that. Glory at its core is just dignity, value, beauty. Authority at its core is just the ability and the power to affect change, to make things happen. What is Satan offering Jesus? He's, he's basically saying, look, I know what kind of world you want to live in. A world of justice, a world of equity, a world where no one starves, a world where... Families aren't broken up. 
I know what you want. And if you would but worship me, I can give you the authority to make that happen. I can give you the power to affect that change. Now that, that, that temptation, you know, moves our heart a little bit more when we hear it that way, right? Or it's not about us. It's actually the, the glory and the authority to finally create the world that we've so long to live in. And also keep in mind, Jesus is a Jew in the first century Judea. The Jews in that time were under the, the iron boot of Rome. They had no glory. They had no authority. Like they were totally mistreated and abused and had been for a while. They were longing for restoration. Imagine Satan pulling out a cell phone and showing Jesus another video of Roman police committing injustice toward his Jewish brother and said, you can stop this. I can give you the authority to stop this right now if you will just worship me. Imagine Jesus watching Caesar throw lavish party after lavish party while his Jewish brothers and sisters are starving and being extorted by greater and greater taxes that they don't have. And Satan's like, you can stop this. I can give this authority and glory to you if you worship me. Jesus is no stranger to the deep anger and deep longing for the world to be made right. He has a vision, the vision that God has poured into the pages of the Bible for the type of world he wants us to live in. And for us today, watching a nation at war in a lot of ways, watching competing sides and competing ideologies say, this is the way we should do it. This is the way. This is the authority we have to affect change. We certainly understand the temptation right now. Now, if we back up a little bit and look at the nature of the temptation itself, there's something interesting going on. Uh, if you remember, right before Jesus was sent out into the desert to be tempted by Satan, he was baptized. And at his baptism, when he came out of the water, we're told that the, the heavens parted and God in the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove rested on him. And there was a voice that spoke and said, this is my beloved son and him I am well pleased. Most scholars hold that that was an echo of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's the psalm describing the son of David. Uh, the Messiah is a word that means the anointed, the chosen of God. So it's a psalm describing God's chosen son, who through him he will establish the eternal kingdom. There will always be a son of David to sit on the throne. And so this messianic psalm, so, so when Jesus heard the father say, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased, he heard echoes of Psalm 2. And here's why this is really, really interesting. Because the very next verse in Psalm 2, right? That was Psalm 2, 7. Psalm 2, 8, this is what it says. God is speaking to his Messiah and he says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Ask of me and I will give the glory and the authority of the nations to you. 
as your inheritance and your possession. It's the exact same words and the exact same offer that Satan makes to Jesus. God says, I will give you the authority and the glory of the nations. And Satan says the same thing. I will give you the authority and the glory of the nations, which leads us to ask, why is this even an attractive offer to Jesus? If God already promised him all these things, why is, why is Satan offering it to him like attractive? Why is Jesus even entertaining it right now? If God already promised us this type of world, why would we even be entertaining seizing the glory and the authority now? And to answer that, we need to go into the temptation itself. I want to read it again. We're told that the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and all their glory, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. In an instant, Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms, plural, of the world. Now here's why that's interesting. In Jesus' day, there were no kingdoms. There was one kingdom, Rome. And Rome was the sole kingdom of all the world. In fact, just two chapters earlier in Luke chapter 2, we were told this, right? Uh, Emperor Augustus, what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. Emperor Augustus decreed a census of the entire world. That's what it says. Rome is, is, as far as Jesus is aware of, of the, the geography of the world, Rome is the sole kingdom. So what other kingdoms is Satan showing him? And I think what that's getting at is something very unique about human nature. See, humans have this unavoidable nature to imagine that their current moment, their current kingdom, is the most important, is the, the, the most significant kingdom, the most significant moment that has ever existed on the face of the earth. This election, 2020, is the single most important election in the history of the United States. How many times have we heard that about elections over the last couple years? This is it. We are all just like the Jews in the first century, imagining that there is one sole kingdom and that this is the most, like all history has been building up to this moment right here. And what we fail to realize and what Satan showed Jesus is that Rome falls. Rome fell. The eternal city fell. And Satan showed Jesus the glory and the authority of all the kingdoms. See, that's, that's what's really interesting. When you look at this, this valley, I don't know where, I mean, he said he took them to a high place, but when you look at this valley of kingdoms and all their glory and authority, what is similar about them is not the kingdom. It's not, you know, which group it was, which, which part of the world it was. That's not what's similar. What is similar is that for a brief moment, they all possess that glory and that authority. They all possess, for a brief moment, their 15 minutes of fame when they had the power to affect change in the world. 
but in every single case, it passed. At a certain point, it stopped. And that glory and that authority was no longer resting on them. And then it rested on another kingdom, another group, another time, another ideology, another movement. Satan says, I can give you this authority and the glory of the kingdoms. I can give you this power. I will give you this power because it has been given to me. The temptation, friends, is to grab that authority and that power now. To grab that glory now and to say, I know how to bring the world peace. That vision that is filling my heart for that just world, that, that world of shalom and restoration that I long for so much, I know how to make it happen. And if I just had the power to do it, I would accomplish it. The temptation is to seize that now and make history go in the direction we think it should go. If you would but listen to me and let me lead these people, if you would let my vision of economic ethics win out, if you would trust my vision of sexual ethics, if you would let me, my party, my kingdom, my movement lead in this moment, we would establish a lasting peace. But notice what Satan shows Jesus is it's never last. It never lasts. If we do that, if we seize the glory and the authority in that moment and try to exert a power to affect change over others, it will not last. We will become just the latest of the long list of kingdoms that have come and passed in this world. I've talked about this before, but this temptation is at the heart of J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. If you're not familiar with it, essentially there is a, there's a ring of power. And every character, every character imagines that they will finally be the one. The temptation is that they can be the one to wield the ring of power. That if, if they just had that in their possession, they could use it to save the world. And when they saved the world, it would be a lasting peace. And the temptation is that that's not the way it works. No one can wield the ring of power. No one has ever been able to do it. As soon as someone grabs it and says, I think I can do it. I think I can wield power to save the world, then the ring starts consuming them, possessing them. They are destroyed, and eventually the glory and the authority of that ring, of the ring, passes on to someone else. And there's this powerful line where Gandalf, the wizard, is actually tempted in the moment. Because Frodo, who, who is given the, the hobbit, who has the ring, he tries to give it to Gandalf, and Gandalf's like, don't tempt me. He goes, Frodo, I, I want to use this ring for good, but through me, it will wield a power more devastating than anything that's been seen. And then he says, there is only one Lord of the Ring, and he does not share power. See, friends, when Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, you realize something. That the, the commonality between all of them is the glory and the authority, the power in that moment to exert some vision over the world, over others, and each kingdom possessed it, and then it passed. It all passed because there's only one Lord of that ring that exerts power over others, Satan. And he does not share his power. You will never create the lasting peace that you desire. 
There have only ever been two kingdoms on the face of this earth. Only two. They've had various forms, but only two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. That's it. And I'm not trying to say that every, every um, kingdom, every movement, everything has, has been uh, wrong or has been you know, unhelpful or, or, or not constructive. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying within the core of each one of those has been the desire that if, if my vision would just win out, if I had the authority to affect change, then we would, it would last. And it never does. It never does. There are two kingdoms. The kingdom that seizes power and exerts it over others, whether that's physical power, democratic power even, even though we have a right to vote, the democratic power to exert a vision over others, ideological power, economic power, that seizes power over others and make the world move in the right direction because you believe it will save it today. But the kingdom of God is as Jesus answered, no matter how much he wants to claim it now and fix the world now, he won't because he won't claim a power that hasn't been given to him yet. Instead, he says it has been written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I will not, no matter how much I want the world to be fixed now, I will not make the world go in the direction I think it needs to go. Instead, I will trust the one who's guiding me. I will not overpower others. It's not a power over people. It's a power within me, says Jesus. That is for people, which is love. Because love can't coerce. Love can't overpower. Love can only direct and speak truth and challenge and invite. And generally, in the kingdom of Satan, which cannot co-opt that type of love, it will snuff it out. And Jesus will end up dying on a cross. But because in every moment he trusts God, he worships God alone, he serves God alone, he does not seize that power and glory and authority over others. It's in that suffering and death that cannot wipe him out that he's actually conferred the authority that is greater than anyone else. He says this in his own ministry earlier on when he was with his disciples. Well, I should say not earlier, earlier before he dies, later after this moment. Um, but when he's with his disciples, his disciples are arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And he says this, he goes, you know that the kingdoms of the Gentiles lord it over others. It's a power over others, but not with you, not with my kingdom. Whoever wants to be first in my kingdom must be last. Whoever wants to be the greatest is actually the servant of all. Mine is not a kingdom that exerts authority over others. It doesn't. It's a, it's a kingdom that serves others. Mine is not a kingdom that makes a world go in a certain direction. Mine is a kingdom that trusts that God is moving the world closer to justice and righteousness and all the things that we so desperately desire. And Brian McLaren says this when he contrasts the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Uh, he calls the kingdom of Satan the empire, but we notice it in our own moment. He says, the power of the empire rode in chariots, Jesus rode on the donkey. The empire wielded swords, Jesus instructed Peter to put down his sword. 
The empire hung people on crosses. Jesus hung on a cross. And even in the Lord of the Rings, the person who was tasked to take the ring of power that only answers to one Lord and destroy it are none of the powerful characters. It's not the dwarves or the elves or the wizards or the men, the strong characters who think they can wield it. It's actually the hobbit, the weakest character in the book, the one who doesn't want to do this, the powerless one. And that's how the kingdom of God overturns the kingdom of Satan, the kingdoms of Satan. Because the kingdom of Satan tries to exert power over everyone and exert power over God, but God allows it because God is love. He allows the power to be exerted even unto his death. And in so doing, he destroys the kingdom of Satan. It is a kingdom unlike any of the others that has ever existed on this earth. And don't be discouraged. Like, don't be discouraged. I'm not saying we Christians are the doormats of the world. That we're just meek and we let people run over us. That's not what I'm saying. We actually have a power that the rest of the world doesn't know. Do you know why? Because the power that is within us is the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We, in fact, are the only people that don't fear death. Do you know how dangerous we are? because we don't fear death. Death is the, the, the greatest weapon of any nation because death signals the end of existence, but not for us. We know what's after death, which is why Jesus says when he shows up and what he offers people, he says the kingdom of God is within you. That power, that power, the power of God that can actually absorb and suffer and not be destroyed by it, that is within you. That is the power of love. And it's not a weak love. It's not a lame love. It is a love that will speak truth to a world that does not honor it. Just like John the Baptist spoke truth to, the, to, to Herod and Herodias, and he was beheaded for it. It is a power that will seek justice because God's kingdom is establishing justice. It is a power that will not participate in, in systems of oppression. But it's a power that will not project itself onto anyone. It's a power that will not overpower anyone. It's a power within us that knows the love of God because in our hearts we are serving and worshiping the one true God. The kingdom of God is within us. It's a power that recognizes that none of the things we seek will come until every heart is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Until every heart is possessed by love, not power over, power for, a power, a power for other people, a faith that knows God will come through, a love that will sacrifice itself and go the extra mile, a generosity that gives away, a knowledge of God that casts out demons, that heals bodies. That is a power that the world and the kingdoms of the earth don't know. And it's within you. It can be. And that is what is spreading because we don't overpower anyone. We worship the Lord our God. And Jesus says this because later on in his own story, right? He rejects Satan's offer. He says, as much as I want to bring it about now, the type of world I want to live, live in now, it's already been promised to me by my father. 
and I will trust and worship him and know that he will confer that authority on me when it's time. And he does after the cross and the resurrection. After he receives the greatest evil power in history of the earth. When Satan throws everything he's got onto Jesus and kills him. And God still raises him to life again. At that point, when there is nothing that can destroy God's love and truth and glory and authority, then Jesus goes to his disciples and says, guess what? Psalm 2.8 happened. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. It's mine now. The kingdom of Satan has no power over you anymore. Now, go and make disciples of all nations, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every people group. Go and make disciples that the kingdom is within them, that they can dwell within their heart and in their lives and their spheres now. Go do that. Go do that. And so that they too may worship and serve the one living God. Pursue justice, but recognize that the justice you're seeking is found at the cross of Jesus, where none of us deserved mercy, where he paid our debts and offered us life instead. Pursue righteousness, but recognize the righteousness that we're all seeking, the, the rightness, the right relationships, only comes when we're in relationship with Jesus. That's where it is. It's a heart and a life that says we're already living in a different kingdom. We're already living in a different kingdom. We already have a different power within us. And it's because we won't exert it over you. It's because we can handle whatever you throw at us and actually not be defeated by it. That is true power. That is something the world hasn't seen. So when we hear from any uh, candidate, any movement, any ideology, Christianity will have power or Follow me and we will make the world right. We know it for what it is. It's, a, it's an exerting of power over people. And please hear me. I'm not saying that, that we don't participate in the American system of government. I'm not saying that at all. Paul, we see in Acts, um, he makes use of his Roman citizenship. When he was in a tough spot, he's like, hey, I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. You're not allowed to do that to me. And they were like, you're right. We shouldn't have done that. So he, he makes use of the kingdoms of the earth. But don't ever get it twisted in your minds to think that God is bringing his kingdom to pass through the kingdoms of the earth. He's not. The kingdom is within you. The kingdom is within us. We are the kingdom that does not exert over, but that loves, that seeks truth, that, that, that marches, that protests, that that works, that, re, that redistributes our wealth. We are the kingdom that shares, that gathers, that worships, that prays. We are that people that speaks truth to one another and calls each other out on the ways we are living, the, the idols in our hearts that actually are too important to our identities than our worship of God. We are that people, and that will be the kingdom. Heaven and earth will pass away, but this kingdom will not pass away. So work, work this fall in the American system. Lead, step into it, but do not believe that God is going to save the world through it. No, it will not be saved until every heart knows 
the love and the grace and the justice that is given to it through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is what will save the world. That is the kingdom that will last. Never a power over people. Always a power for people. And with that, we're stepping into a new series next week. Because that sounds great, but what are the elements of that power? We're going to break that down. If every candidate and every movement and every ideology is claiming to be a light, to enlighten the darkness, to light up the darkness and save us, and I'm saying, actually, no, there is no light of the world like Jesus Christ. And just, just as a teaser for what's coming up next week, this is a guy who was poor, who was in an oppressed group, who lived in a very small region of the world, who had a very short ministry, who died grotesquely, and according to some claims from his closest followers, was actually resurrected. This was a nobody, and there is no one, there's no other story that has changed the course of history or changed the world like him. That's a light that has enlightened something. It's doing something. But I guarantee you guys, even for you, those of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus, there are elements in your heart and your mind that you're actually not his disciple. You're not. And I'm just going to speak very plainly because I've seen it in myself. You actually are more a disciple of, of something else, someone else, another way of the world. And we're going to look. We're going to believe. We're going to trust. We're going to throw ourselves in in this crazy year to the belief that Jesus is the light of the world. And in him and in his kingdom, no matter how it feels uh, within me, no matter how it, it feels uncomfortable in my mind, in my heart, I'm going to trust that following him brings the satisfaction for all of our souls and the justice for this earth that he promises. And so that's what we're stepping into next week. Well, before we get there, we got another seven days, and I'd love to pray, and then we'll sing a song and take communion together. So will you join me in prayer? God, I just, I would ask everyone to search their hearts right now that you would lead them. Would they consider all the ways that they've actually put their trust in kingdoms of this earth? Political parties, candidates, movements, whatever it is. And in those ways, they've, they've grabbed hold of glory and authority. They've grabbed hold of power. And they said, let's make the world right now. And, and would they see that that's not necessarily a bad thing? We are called to work toward the restoration of this world. But would they see that every time they've done that, it's never lasted. And there's only one that brings that lasting peace, joy, satisfaction. And it's slow. It's so slow. But it's the only thing that provides, the only kingdom that, that, that starts that true transformation of people's hearts. And that is found when we are totally dependent in our hearts totally trust you, the one who came to earth, who did not overpower others, who used the power of the living God to restore others, to love others, to serve others. And that service took you to a cross where you would not fight back. And then after that cross, you were raised to life again, to in a new type of life. That is the promise for us. That is the kingdom that is spreading. And that's the authority that has been given to Jesus and to no one else because it's the authority that has defeated death and that will be us too. So Lord, I just ask that, 
everyone would, who's tuning in would sense your call to first and foremost worship you alone in their heart of hearts. Not put their trust, their ultimate trust in anyone else but you. And then out of that space, out of that deep trust and love, we can do the work. We can, we can be participants in our societies, in our neighborhoods, but in a different way. A way that seeks the kingdom, but a way that knows that the kingdom doesn't come through forcing it on others. The kingdom comes when we invite people to worship and love you and be loved by you. So would that be their, their heart's first priority this fall? To invite people to worship Jesus. To invite people to know their worth and their identity in your eyes, Lord. Would we care more about bringing people to you than we would anything else? God, thank you for this family. Thank you for this community. Give us wisdom and guidance. And thank you that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.